stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. It's just gone 1 o'clock on a Tuesday. That means it's time for the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. I'm your host, Tilly Karalambos, and I'm joined in studio by one of the more male panels and probably less pretty panels we've had in a long time. Yeah. Uh, joined in studio by Simon Addison, our Chief Africa Correspondent, John Stupart, the man who wakes you up uh, every morning with uh, great news in the first as first thing editor, and Gushwell Brooks, our uh, columnist at Daily Maverick. Welcome, gents. Thank you. Awesome. Happy New Year. Compliments of the season and all that other malarkey. <laughs> Let's uh, get straight into uh, things making news in first thing, John. Um, what yeah. uh, death and destruction awaits us? Well, always, every week, you know, there's, there's always going to be death and destruction. It's really just who's causing the death and who's, who's doing the destruction that, that changes every so often. Um, the, I think the, the biggest thing starting this week is the Charlie Hebdo headlines, which if, you know, unless you've been living under a rock today and if you've seen any headlines anywhere, um, they're looking to, or they will be rather, publishing a cartoon of Muhammad on their front page, um, uh, almost in, I, I suppose, direct defiance, I guess, of the, the attacks last week, which I guess is the whole point in principle of freedom of speech. It just would be very interesting to see what the, the reactions will be uh, to do that. Um, and then also carrying on with that, you also started to see uh, in in Germany you have very very uh, bigoted, uh, for lack of a better word. Well, there there, there are better mm-hmm. words, but you know even even on uncensored radio, I think I should censor myself. Uh, uh, protests, I guess, in Dresden, sort of protesting mm-hmm. anti-Islamic uh, sentiment and 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 general xenophobia and awfulness, which seems very disturbing considering these are Germans who are doing it and really the last time the Germans had a rally in Dresden it it kind of um it mm. kind of resulted in all sorts of all sorts of invasions. Yeah, even before the uh, Paris attacks, we were seeing this uh, an increased level of sentiment, anti-Islamic sentiment, marches and and movements starting to gather pace mm. in in a lot of countries in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, Germany's never really been particularly great in terms of xenophobic uh, reputation. They've always, even I remember in, in the early two thousands when I was studying Germany, hearing stories from my uh, my, my my coloured uh, German lecture talking about the victimization she experienced in a, a relatively low income area in Germany where you tend to get targeted simply because you look different um, mm. or even you just don't even look slightly German, which is a very, very difficult kind of thing to square when, when, when Germans or, you know, local original Germans, for lack of a better word, start pinpointing or pigeonholing people simply because they're not, I'm not going to say Aryan, but I think mm. I just did, um, kind of <laughs> profiles. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's very, it's very disturbing to see how little Germany's progressed. John, John, do you think that, that there are parallels between the sort of pre-1945 demonization of Jews and the Jewish religion um, and the sort of civilizational clash that, uh, that, people like Hitler espoused, and, and the way the, the, the narrative is going um, on Islam at the moment. I don't, I don't know. Is, is it almost a setup for, yeah. for something similar to happen? Um, I, I certainly think it's quite disturbing when you when you see the, the reprisal attacks. There was I saw a map, I think it was the New York Times, if I remember correctly, talking or just illustrating the number of attacks and the type of attacks against um, Muslim or Muslim-related establishments, people, and things like that. And that's just in France, let alone these, these, these rallies we now see in Germany. That said, I, I don't think it's 
it's cause for alarm just yet. I'm, I'm probably hamming up the, the Nazism too much here because when you look at the, the, the pro-freedom of speech rallies in, in Paris and the rest of France, you're looking at three million people which is a hell of a lot more than the 25,000 people organized by a, a crazy right-wing socialist party mm. or not national socialist mm. party. Uh, uh, the thing is, you only need a couple to go crazy, as mm. we saw last week yeah. in, in, in Paris, for, uh, exactly. for bad things to uh, happen. And, and also, oh, sorry, Gershwa. Well, yeah. what, I'm, what I'm really worried about is that there's a conflation now of, on the one end, which is a valid argument in terms of uh, freedom of expression, and on the other hand, people then using that. To, to you know um, increase the amount of Islamophobia going around this because I mean the, what you just mentioned there about Charlie Hebdo the real question is is that yes I'm all for freedom of expression that's why I'm sitting here but <laughs> the, the real issue is what are you trying to prove by going again and putting the Prophet Muhammad yeah. on on your front page no and I agree and I think you can't you can't um, say that the the, the small neo Nazi type marches are necessarily diametrically opposed to the, the multi-million freedom of expression ones because I exactly. mean, the people in that Paris march some of those world leaders in attendance um, Ali Bongo uh, Ali Bongo Odimba of Gabon was uh, one example but Benjamin Netanyahu um, <laughs> another example Mahmoud Abbas um, I think I think uh, someone said Sisi was there the Egyptian <laughs> president um, you know for them that wasn't a, that was not a march um, about freedom of expression that was a march against terrorism specifically Islamist terrorism. Yes, absolutely. And I think to to broaden the thing as well, when you start looking at Germany itself, Germany isn't necessarily um, fostering this anti-Islamic or Islamophobic attitude so much as it's 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 starting to incubate a wholesale xenophobic kind of attitude. Whereas I think in Paris, the reprisals. I suspect, I mean, this is, I have absolutely no substantiation for this, but I, I get the impression it's limited and it, it, it will fizzle out as the year progresses, barring, God forbid, any other uh, attacks in Paris. Whereas in Germany, this is simply just another another flashpoint in a, a quite a long or sort of history, at least in the 21st century, hmm. of German xenophobia, which I, I think is a, a bit more systemically disturbing than, than what's happening in France. Um, just getting back to the cover that uh, Charlie Hebdo are running uh, on, on this current edition that's going out now, that's going out to three million, they're doing a print run of three million, cool. uh, which is 50 times bigger than their normal mm. print circulation on the back of it. Uh, we've had um, different responses from different publications around the world in carrying that cover uh, on their pages. Mm. So uh, I believe the, the New York Times declined to, to run the cover. Uh, the Guardian did in the interest of it being such a newsworthy topic. Uh, but there were various, there were different responses, people saying, you know, we're not going to partake in, in that we believe in mm. uh, the freedom of speech, but we're not going to, not going to run those covers. But Steely, you know, I'm going to go back to a fundamental question here, right? So, and, and yes, maybe we're putting, it's not just about freedom of expression, but it also then becomes an issue of, of people's right uh, to, to freely express themselves religiously, right? And in Islam, it's, it's forbidden. To, to make any images of, of mm. the Prophet whatsoever mm. for, for, for religious reasons. Mm. So what, what, is it, what is the statement you're making then as a non-Muslim mm. by saying that you know, we are going to print this anyway? Because the issue is, is that we need to ask ourselves, is the enemy then Islam? Or is the enemy um, the Boko Harams and the Al-Shababs and you know, the ISISs mm. of the world and the Al-Qaeda's? Mm. Because if those are your enemies, then what business do you have putting the Prophet on the cover? And don't get me wrong, I really feel for the guys when it comes mm. to the Charlie Hebdo issue. Mm. And I don't think that killing 12 mm. people and mm. wounding 11 people is mm. the obvious response. Of mm. course not. 
But for goodness sake, what are you guys, I mean, isn't there something called being responsible in this field? Um, mm. Well, then there's also the question of, um, you know, th- then take that up. Take that up with the ombudsman. Take that up with the constitution of France. I agree. And, I agree. and they mm. did and they failed and they were rejected and they kicked out. And, and that's why Charlie Hebdo continued to do that is because the laws of France allow them to do that. Mm. And, uh, and then unfortunately is only going to leave you know, in my mind, peaceful protest outside Charlie Hebdo's office with placards and stuff instead mm. of gun-wielding, uh, you know, uh, yeah. crazy extremists. Also comes back to an interesting article I read, and this was from 10 years ago. Mm. It's like, Islamic fundamentalist extremism, mm. where does it come from? You know, and, and that was the question in this article and saying, okay, why is it that we have extremists um, you know, who are part of this? Where does it come from? Why, why is this, uh, why is it only, or does it seem to be only, um, it's you know, not, it's in, not, you know, we have, I mean, we had 20, 20 years ago, we had, uh, you know, uh, genocide in Serbia that was, was, you know, called Christian genocide happening, you know, perpetrated mm. by, by Christians. But uh, the question coming back was, why is this happening? And it was interesting take on, uh, how Saudi Arabia's, um, you know, economic rise on the back of, uh, the demand for oil, uh, over the last, what, 60, 70, 80 years, um, helped them fund these schools that, that taught, uh, the extreme version and mm. interpretations of Islam and went around funding these, uh, these schools, which then obviously grew on the back of, of, of all this funding. Mm. And that Saudi Arabia is pretty much at the center of this extremist Very interpretation. And, and that for me was quite interesting to see where does it come from? Who's fostering this? Who's, who, you know, where, and of course, you know, where does Saudi Arabia's money come from? Uh, you know, the, the West, <laughs> the United States almost, you know. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, okay, sure, okay. Thanks for your money, but look, we actually hate you. And then someone just gets back to a comment you made on, on one of a previous show where you, you, you compared Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, to be mm. just as bad, if not worse, as ISIS. And then, oh, I remember that. Yes, yes. <laughs> you guys had that. John, John wasn't happy with me that day. You know, <laughs> yes, uh, I strangely had a similar argument yesterday with a friend of mine about, uh, yeah, whether or not, you know, sort of state... State-sponsored terrorism is is better than than just uncontrolled chaotic terrorism, um, and it seems to be quite a theme that <laughs> involves me, I guess. <laughs> uh, I want to go back to to the the sort of uh, this perception that religious fundamentalism fundamentalism is only Islamic, mm. which is nonsense. I, I just don't don't get that. You know, um, I, I, Myanmar at the moment. Mm. There's some horrendous Buddhist pogroms going on against um, the Rohingya community in, in one of the remote areas of the country. Absolutely horrendous stuff. Very similar to what we're seeing in Nigeria, actually. The reports are, are the same. There's been plenty of violent Hindu nationalism as mm. well. Mm-hmm. In the Central African Republic, does anyone remember Joseph Kony, yeah. who has not yet been stopped? <laughs> yeah. um, he, is, he is head of the Lord's Resistance Army. Which yeah. Lord is that? That's the Christian God. Um, so, you know, it, 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 a lot of it, it's just how we report. Exactly. Things yeah. um, and the labels we choose to assign. So Joseph Kony's a rebel. He's not a terrorist. Yeah. Um, and people like him tend to just get forgotten. You yes. Know? When yes. when invisible children make a big deal and they do a YouTube clip that the world watches and does nothing about, then Joseph Kony is a big issue. Then he's a big ticket item. But after <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lovely story, just going a slight div, div, uh, diversion. Um, the second in command of the Lord's Resistance Army has just been caught and handed over yes. to the U.S. Um, now, he was captured by the Seleka rebels in the Central African Republic. Now, they are <laughs> uh, sort of a, a Muslim rebel group 
um, that was largely responsible for for causing the civil war in that country. Um, but now and also killing 15 South African soldiers. And exactly. So it's not exactly a nice bunch of guys. But they caught this guy and they handed him over to the U.S. And now they're saying, well, there was a five million dollar bounty <laughs> on his head. So so where's the money? Show yeah. us the money. Pay back the money. Um, <laughs> and Israeli, you may as well be, at that point be funding the Lord's Resistance Army yeah. if you're going to give five million dollars to the Seleka rebels. Uh, but Simon, this also comes back to the article you wrote uh, a couple of days ago that got a lot of interest on Daily Maverick, um, comparing, uh, well, not comparing, but but stating the facts that you know we had this terrible atrocity that happened in Paris, uh, seventeen people were killed, uh, and we had this massive, massive uh, media scrutiny, uh, you know, live broadcast. The you know the entire world was glued to their televisions watching, you know, the sieges uh, unfold. Mm. And then we had 2,000 people, an entire village was was taken out by Boko Haram. And the media response to that was, you know, it was a drop in the ocean compared to what happened. It was was absolutely shameful. Um, And, you know, we've got to look at ourselves as well. We're a media organization. Um, We, at the Daily Maverick, we, we... put a really fantastic editorial on our front page mm. about the Paris massacres um, and what it means for freedom of expression and standing mm. up for that. And it was brilliant. But, you know, we haven't done anything similar for Nigeria or, or, for, or for sort of any African mm. stuff. Um, and then there are probably a couple, of, uh, a couple of issues for that as well yeah. as part of the greater sort of media scrutiny that, or, or coverage of that. I mean, it's difficult to cover those places. Uh, you've had, um, you know, people in our field, you know, uh, you know, when it was mm. one of us, you cut yeah. one of us, we bleed as well. You know, no, that's no, no, absolutely. There, there were various mm. factors. Um, but I mean, I, I think there are excuses. When you look at mm. the, the, the numbers, 17 compared to 2000, mm. if you do the math, mm. that's 133 Paris massacres mm. compared to one Nigeria massacre. Mm. It, it's just, it's mm. absolutely mm. mental. Doesn't that also tie in with um, the previous issue we were talking about uh, with regards to this perception that, you know, when uh, an Islamic extremist attacks a Western target, it, it's bigger news. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. uh, and that's and that perception exactly. we have. But if you're uh, the Lord's Resistance Army taking out, you know, African lives, not, not so much. Well, I it's a... Uh, sorry to, to interrupt there. I mean, I see. I agree with that third point in that it's, it's difficult to get information, but I think that stems from two other larger points. Is firstly that it's it's just inherently less sellable than than mm-hmm. European terrorism because European terrorism is of interest to Europeans and Western audiences. Um, and secondly, as well, I think. Mm. Africa in general, and yes, I'm going to put on my colonial hat here and, and blame it for it, but it's, Africa is perceived as this inherently violent place. So people are not surprised mm. when 2,000 mm. people are butchered um, and, and, and killed yeah. and, and, and raped. And thus there is, no, there is no interest in it, and thus there is no good sources or information because there's no media presence there. I tend to agree um. with John, but uh, I mean, just to go back to the, you know, the massacre in, in Rwanda, about two decades ago. Yeah. Yeah where a journalist made a very, very telling observation, where she actually said that when she saw all those dead bodies on the road, and I mean, we know, we remember the visuals from Rwanda. It was, it was horrific. People mm. macheted to death, and their bodies just strewn all over the roads. And she saw all these bodies, I mean, kids, women, elderly people, the works. And she said she didn't shed a single tear. Mm. But two years prior mm. to that, when she was in Bosnia, she was crying her eyes out. Yeah, and she said there's some, and, and that's when she realized, and and maybe I don't know. This is, I hope not an un, unbecoming comment, but I, I think there's something about the likeness as well. You know, when you look at mm. someone, you can empathize mm. with them. Uh, they look like you. 
you feel for them a little more than the guy same that doesn't. Bringing, same exactly. cultural background. Yeah. Exactly. Because, and then part of the mm. European issue is, is that it wasn't expected. Who expected France? No. Honestly, yeah. who expected two nutcases to grab AK-47s, mm. storm a building and kill 12 people? And then mm. wound 11. And then two, three days later, we have Well, actually, you say that. Who expects that? But when you look at some of the underlying issues, I mean, uh, mm. France has had a history of xenophobic mm. uh, violence. Mm. Um, uh, Islam is now, the, what, the six million practicing um, people within there. And, and those tensions... And they're bombing terrorists and they're bombing, all around the world. And yeah. they're bombing terrorists around the world. You're going to see some of those tensions. I mean, I, it's it's maybe not... Su- it's surprising in that they were... Well, and then you add obviously the the uh, Charlie Hebdo approach to treating Islam. I, I want to sure. might, yeah, is it really surprising that it happened? Yeah, exactly. I want to address what what Gershaw was saying about uh, likeness, mm. and I think you're exactly right. And it's a really a really uncomfortable territory mm. for people to get into because it, mm. it it gets very racial very quickly. Yeah, no. Um, but you know, we, it's something we need to address. But that explains, yes, why the sort of world media was so obsessed with with Paris. But what about African media? I mean, that, that argument doesn't work in Nigeria. Yeah, sure. um, and I mean, in Nigeria, in Lagos, mm. there was more coverage of Paris than there was of mm. Baga. In Nigeria, in South Africa, a but, fellow African country. So, I mean, I think if I could maybe offer up a, a, a reason for the Nigerian lack of coverage, um, is that not really just showing themselves up uh, the lack of control that they have and, and obviously the influence of the state and not embarrassing no, the no, state. No, I, I think you don't give Nigerian journalists enough credit. There is some mm. really good journalists and a vibrant press mm. in Nigeria. Mm. Um, very, it's very similar in many ways to South Africa. They're, they're constantly looking at, at what their government's done wrong and what can be done to fix it and mm. all that kind well, of surely stuff. Surely certain segments, but is, isn't the majority then obviously influenced by the government as it is here? You know the majority of the outlets, uh, and in which look, case, if, if two, but I mean, look at Marikana here. That 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 received mm. plenty of attention in the press. Um, I, there there is something something more wrong mm. in in Nigeria. I don't think that they the editors sit there and say, "Oh, two thousand people dead. I'm not going to publish the story because it makes my country look bad." Mm. Um, I don't buy that, the, and I think that um, I suspect it might be something to do with the fact that Baga is. By if you're if you're in Lagos or Abuja, Baga is miles and miles away. It's it it doesn't exist in the the I think the urban Nigerian uh, context. Whereas mm-hmm. it's not like South Africa, mm-hmm. where if say for example two thousand people were massacred in even Oranya for crying out loud, you know some podunk backward little you know sort of slightly incestuous little town, that's going to be big news. That's going to be hell of a big news. Whereas in Nigeria. Um, the north and south is already a huge split, and then you start looking at these tiny little villages where 2,000 people are killed. It has no bearing on on the modern Lagos mm. man. Whereas, oh no, I have to cancel my trip to Paris or my business or <laughs> and or shopping trip. Mm-hmm. It, it be- I think it, it sort of bears far more importance, and I, you know, for for good or for ill, I think that might be. A, and an you can draw a parallel of- to to the likeness uh, part again. So if we take the TB Joshua. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catastrophe that happened. It, there was pr- pretty good coverage in the South African. Eventually, it picked up a lot of steam. Mm. But I mean, that was also because it was you know eighty of our own who, exactly. who, who yeah. had died. And mm. um, you know, so there is that. But I mean, still at the end of the day, you're right. It's still two thousand people massacred in an mm. act of terrorism um, that should be completely blowing our minds and and going our uh, you know our our, our pages. But it, but it's not. But going back to Simon's article, I mean, the one thing that I that I picked up there was the fact that. Journalists were just not in the area as well. 
You know, they had to go there after the fact, um, assuming that they even went there. No, they, they can't. Um, the, the nearest journals are 600 kilometers away, exactly. and they still can't get in. But the mm-hmm. second point is, is that it, it again points how Nigeria, in, in, in as much as there are similarities in terms of mm-hmm. you know, both being the economic powerhouses of Africa and all that, these are two very different countries. You know, parts of Nigeria is, is, is SF government has lost complete and utter control mm-hmm. of those parts mm-hmm. of the country, and, and, and Baga especially. If you think about it, that's that's the part of Nigeria where the government has no hold of it. So no matter what good luck Jonathan says, and by the way, good luck Jonathan is saying what he's saying because he wants to, to you know, he wants to win another election. Mm. Uh, but he has absolutely no control, and that is why Boko Haram is still a problem. And I think that will remain the fundamental issue. We'll we'll keep on having these reports going twenty years now, um, unless of course I think what's going to shake Boko Haram up, sadly enough is if their current leader dies and then there's a leadership squabble mm. and then they break into little splinters. That's what's going to bring Boko Haram to its knees. But then you'll Not still have a, okay, say Boko Haram splits, you're still going to have something like the DRC where instead of, you know, one singular organization, you now have thousands of little rebel splinter groups running around basically yeah. acting as bandits. And there's no longer even this political sure, or sure. ideological objective mm. unifying them and it becomes becomes uh, chaos. But the point being that the Nigerian government just has absolutely no control oh, yeah. when it comes to this None. issue. None yeah. whatsoever. So unfortunately, I, I don't see hope on the horizon either. And, and the real question that one needs to ask, though, is, is that, I mean, if you look at a Charlie Hebdo situation, there is light at the end of the tunnel. You know, this thing is going to be dealt with at one point or the other. Yes. So Charlie Hebdo is going to go ahead and they're going to print their cover. Um, the, the French government is going to rally. Um, they, they've promised that now they're going to uh, join the, the what? The, the um, allegiance of the willing or whatever they call themselves yeah. now. Your, your right. internet browser history, it's time to, to start going through your browser history, cleaning it up yeah. because uh, Big Brother uh, French edition is going to start watching. Exactly. Yeah. So, but, but with, with Nigeria, we're not going to see them. You know, no. what I, a sort of the theory that I've been mulling over for a long time, and it's the kind of thing that would, would occupy a doctoral candidate for many, many years. And I certainly will never get to the bottom of it. But sort of this idea that, that the Western world, that we have, you know, we have this image of the Western world that yes, of course, they're, they're going to clean this up. They're going to sort this problem out. France is going to be fine. Um, and the way that they do that is just to export the, the, the consequences somewhere else. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I think that's what's going to happen. It has happened throughout French history. You know, they've all, the French wars, the, the territory that, that they've gained, the, the interventions, that is ultimately what led to the Charlie Hebdo, I think. You know, these guys um, were Algerian. Mm. What France did in Algeria was yeah. one of the greatest atrocities mm. of the 20th century. Mm. Um, and of and course, also so this is not... Film. Yeah, yes. But, but it's, it's interesting Algiers, that, yeah. that, that that has not featured at all in the, the, the critique. Um, this is, you know, it's all been about Islamic fundamentalism, not mm. about blowback from, mm. from the, the, the Algerian adventures. When you talk about the Algerian adventures that we one can date back to say a hundred years, what about the current laws? I mean, you know, if, if and, and and the current state of the nation, you know, I mean, surely you need to start addressing the Islamophobia that we've been talking about, the xenophobia that you've been talking about, and some of the laws that prevent. I mean, something as basic basic as as a woman not being allowed to wear a hijab in in public, you know, or veil. I mean, it's crazy. Really. And, and you do wonder, you know, freedom what, what of is expression, is, is wearing a hijab not freedom of expression? Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, exactly. I think the, I don't think you, I think it would be very hasty to assume that France is going to even potentially look at relaxing some of its, its harsh sort of mildly xenophobic laws, because I think you see 
in Australia, for example, the response to to Islamic-based terrorism mm. on Australia has to be to harden itself up. Yeah, yeah. Same as America. Yeah. Homeland yeah, Security, course. for all its ills, has prevented a major attack, Boston bombings notwithstanding, mm. um, f- on its shores. And there have been incidences where they've preemptively arrested terrorists and, and combated it. And I think the 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 end objective of liberalizing your society, and bear in mind, France is already pr- fairly liberal as far as uh, Western democracies go, the results are not known, whereas the, the outcomes for hardening your society, enforcing immigration controls, putting CCTV cameras everywhere, profiling, all those kind of things, does unfortunately yield some manner of, 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 of protection while still allowing them their expeditionary counter-terror capability. Uh, and I think that's, that's a very disturbing thing if, if France starts to just follow the British and American model because I think that would be, I think France would lose a hell of a lot mm. of its own characteristic or character in, in, in the process. Not to labor the point, John, and, and Steely, I promise you this is the final one <laughs> I'm going to make, the final point I'm going to make on this, is that look, unfortunately, and this is unsensitive, you're just going to end up pissing people off a little more. Right? Because what you're doing is, is that you're basically saying that guys, you are different, and because you're different, we're going to treat you differently, mm. and we're going to scrutinize you more. And what that does then is that if there's a young bloke, and, and that's what we're seeing the rise of now, mm. these two brothers were, for all intents and purposes, lone wolves. Right? Mm. The Boston bombing mm. guys, lone wolves as well. Yeah. Yes, there was an ideology, but it's not as if they had a, an HQ that they needed to report back to mm. and explain what their plan mm. was going to be. They decided to execute on their own. Sure, they were lone wolves, but they were trained. No, they were trained. They were trained. They're both mm. Boston bombers as and these sure, guys. Sure. Went and got formal training. But yeah, from from some kind of organized terrorist cell. Uh, but uh, Homeland Security intelligence mm. didn't pick up chatter because mm. they didn't have to go and communicate with someone sitting, I don't know, in the desert somewhere mm. in Afghanistan yeah. and then double check with them if, if our next move is going to be mm. fine. Mm. They went ahead and did the stuff anyway. Well, someone and, and was the only, me, uh, and so the only way this stuff rises up is, is that, well, I'm sitting here, I'm being treated differently, I'm getting disenfranchised, mm. it's really starting to work on my nerves, I'm going to do something about it. And the unfortunate backlash is this type of stuff is going to, I really predict that this stuff is going to, we're going to see a little more of this stuff happen. Well, to, to play devil's advocate, I don't, I don't endorse this policy at all, but mm. I do think that hardening your country as, as a counter-terror security state does work, though. I mean, yes, you will radicalize a hell of a lot more people. You will piss off a hell of a lot more people, but you will also have a hell of a lot more security or freedom of, 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 of force, you know, police, yeah. security forces, intelligence, um, surveillance, and all those kinds of things, which means you can conduct a hell of a lot more uh, interventions before it gets to this. I think part of the problem with with these attackers is that the, the, the one of the brothers had served time in prison. He was under surveillance. Ooh. The Americans mm-hmm. knew of him as well. I mean, God, mm-hmm. the Americans know of it as well. So I think the problem is the you know the, the French intelligence simply just couldn't handle all of these things because they don't have the the powers or the autonomy that that America has to to deal with mm-hmm. these things. And I think. Uh, at least President Hollande is going to be having or asking some very, very searching questions about do we go that way mm. where you have a fairly good chance of being able to – yes, you, you lose all of these social freedoms, uh, and I fully agree on that. I think that's an awful thing and an awful way to go. But at the same time, there's an assured outcome at the end, relatively speaking. Is there though, John? Is there? I mean, this is an age where pretty much – you know, look at America. Anyone can walk into a shop and buy a gun. Um yeah. America may succeed in preventing an attack this year or next year, but they won't the year after that. At some point, someone will break through those defenses. And the cost of those defenses is to restrict the freedoms and rights of 
hundreds of millions mm. of people. Absolutely. I, I'm not sure that that trade-off works for me. Well, no, I don't think it works for, for, for anyone other than, you know, the, the governments involved. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm just, I, I'm thinking, Yes, there will be another attack, but there certainly won't be another 9-11. Yeah. You know, I imagine getting checks on trying to learn how to fly an airplane, for example, is, is a hell of a lot more difficult. Yeah. Yes, you can buy a gun in America, anywhere in the, you know, in a supermarket and all that with very minimal checks. But the downside is if you take that gun and go in a shooting spree, most other Americans have guns themselves. Um, and you, you end up in this horribly escalated situation. But at the end of the day, it's, it, it does lend to some sort of weird, Chaotic self enforcement, self policement. Wasn't that a case in the cinema shooting the late, about a year or two ago where I think it was in Texas where the, you know, the guy had opened fire and killed uh, a couple of the moviegoers, but he was taken down himself by another guy who was packing heat in the cinema. You know, I am a Magnum 45. I'm going to go catch me a little bit of Dumb and Dumber too. <laughs> yeah. Make sure I'm, 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 I'm my Smith and Wesson. Well, that was a, me, I think the, que- the moving question was actually the rise of the Dark Knight or what the Dark Knight becomes. <laughs> I think yes. that was the moving yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to invoke a quote by the, the, the Admiral Yamamoto from World War II, a very famous Japanese admiral, he said, we could never invade the homeland uh, of the United States because because you'd find a rifle underneath every blade of grass. <laughs> and I, I think that's, that's, that's the way America's gone. It's just completely um, weaponized. It's crazy. Another point on, on, on Charlie Hebdo. Um, it was interesting to see the, the police commissioner of France committed suicide after the oh, really? event. Yeah, I did not I see saw that. that. I saw that. Really? He shot himself crazy. Uh, after that. Uh, just Ooh. overcome with, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, maybe the deficiencies in, in, you know, that they could have done more to prevent it mm-hmm. or the grief. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was quite interesting and obviously sad to see. Uh, Sounds like a Japanese harakiri kind of, you know, oh, it's a very Japanese kill yourself kind of from approach shame. to go, yeah. And, yeah. uh, and the other one that, um, is now starting to, uh, and obviously going back to our friends in Saudi Arabia is, is looking at, the, the price of oil, which, uh, Goldman Sachs are expecting in the next 90 days to hit $40 a Woo-hoo. barrel. Uh, and, uh, we're seeing, I mean, we're obviously the knock on effect for us is, is that the petrol price comes down and petrol price comes down and obviously helps with the cost of living everywhere around the world. Now, I guarantee you'll see you know what would same. be the appropriate song to play now? What would, what would that be? Red or Chili Peppers Road Trippin'. <laughs> <laughs> the, the last time we tried to play an appropriate song for a news item we were discussing, we got a little bit, uh, yeah, got, got a little bit of backlash for. Uh, so we don't do that anymore. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, oil going down to $40 a barrel, uh, it's off the back of OPEC, the oil producing, uh, countries, uh, mm. who are trying to put the shale producers in America out of business. Uh, shale gas, uh, has almost single-handedly turned around the American economy over the last couple of years. It's added something like a million jobs, um, to the American economy. And it's also turned America from being a net import of oil to now being a net export of oil, mm. now, which has major significance and, and, and consequences, uh, one of which from an African perspective, uh, we saw uh, Nigeria on the back of their oil production and exports to America became the biggest economy in Africa on the back of that. That now has almost been wiped away because America aren't buying oil from Nigeria. So if they do ever restate that in less than 10 years, we might again become the biggest. Angola as well as uh, a huge export of oil to, to the United States. But, um, so this, this battle between OPEC and the shale producers to see, uh, you know, how they can flood the market and drive down the price of oil and obviously try and, you know, kill these shale producers got me thinking, you know, would America's 
non-dependence on oil, which is now you know uh, a new set of circumstances and reality for the first time, would that change its foreign policy to Saudi Arabia? Um, you know, uh, because mm-hmm. they've pretty much been allowed to to get away with murder in, in a lot of circumstances. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of the terror, I mean, bin Laden was Saudi Arabian. Uh, we've got uh, how many beheadings did uh, did Saudi Arabia um, uh, perpetrate last year? Mm. Uh, human rights atrocities. We've got this uh, example of a, of a blogger who now has been imprisoned uh, for something like 10 years and for the next 20 weeks will be receiving 50 lashes. So uh, every week for the next 20 weeks because he um, criticized Islam. Uh, and that just doesn't go down well in, in Saudi Arabia. And this mm. comes back to those extreme schools um, teaching those extreme versions and, doct- uh, and interpretations of, of mm. Islam. So uh, I was just wondering, you know, if we no longer reliant on, on Saudi oil, um, you know, will the Western powers, will America take a different stance on uh, on their human rights mm. uh, abuses? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Simon. <laughs> okay, okay. I shall explain myself. <laughs> uh, the, the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is why, what's America doing in the Middle East? Are they there to export fundamental Western values such as human rights, freedom of expression, democracy? Or are they there for more strategic purposes? I would argue the latter. Mm. See no evidence of America trying really to export mm. democracy anywhere successfully. Um, <laughs> now I think we have already seen a change in policy after the the oil price um, decline, a change of American policy. We've seen that with this, all this ISIS stuff going on in Iraq, um, America hasn't really got involved. They've done a bit, they're, but they've kind of done the bare minimum um, that they need to to try and keep things relatively stable. There've been no, you know. Massive troops on the ground, no expending of hundreds of billions of dollars in um, in another another actual war to sort this problem out. I think if ISIS had happened five years ago, um, it would have been a very very different situation. Now, when it comes to Saudi, you got to ask yourselves, what would it cost? You know, so if America starts saying to Saudi, well, you need to buck up and you know stop killing people, stop uh, sponsoring uh, terrorism, all these kinds of things. What would it cost America? Well, it would cost America their main ally in the Middle East. And yes, shale gas is working now. But, you know, you've got to play the long game as a country. You're talking decades and decades. Why on earth would you alienate um, one of your most dependable allies that happens to be sitting on one of the world's greatest uh, reserves of energy? I I think for the moment, if I was an American policymaker, um, I would still be trying to trying to make friends with Saudi Arabia as and much I, as I could. I think uh, to, to I agree with you fully on on that regard. I think also when you start looking at American shale gas industry, it's heavily heavily subsidized. Um, it's 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 not this all wonderful miracle of providing free or virtually free energy to Americans because it's it's costing the American state a hell of a lot of money and you know the gas tends to get in terms of reserves at least in the American reserves it, it's not going to last nearly as long as it's uh, you know as, as oil or extractive industries elsewhere you're talking about the hydrocarbons um, so I think when you start looking at oil imports into America. I think America will, in the future, certainly look towards other countries again for importing oil, particularly if there's another financial crisis, for example. I think uh, there's already a lobby for lowering the uh, subsidization of shale gas and thus increasing the price uh, of, of gas-based energy in uh, in America. And that will have a knock-on effect for in terms of, of buying 
oil or importing oil back into the States. Whether or not it'll go back to Saudi Arabia, I'm not sure because I think, I think America is smarter than that and I think they're actually trying to broaden their foreign policy in this regard, which is why you see they're, well, now next to China, they're the number two importer of oil from Angola, which if I remember correctly is a, actually an OPEC member, um, for, for some weird reason that I don't quite understand. But they do still have these relatively unstable countries in their, in their books. But I think the the move to Saudi Arabia, I think, will not happen as big as it did po- probably in the 20th century. That said, I, yeah, I certainly could see them coming back um, with, with, with their hose pipe ready mm. to siphon the yeah. oils. Uh, a, a scary thought. Um, the last time oil dropped by this much in this short uh, a period of time uh, was uh, just before the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and, and people are starting mm. to, oh. are starting to get, uh, you know, um, very shivery and, uh, and, uh, scary thoughts about, uh, that repeat, a repeat of those circumstances as well. So um, saying it was a good decision. Steely always sees the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, go along on those short positions. Uh, <laughs> or take the road trip now while your yeah. savings are worth a day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, uh, interesting, uh, segment, uh, I saw on, uh, on, the Vice um, news program the other day was that the oil deposits in the North Pole are actually the biggest uh, on uh, Earth, and and that is now idea. now starting well, to generate is... uh, a lot of uh, interest from all the countries who can lay claim to those territories. Yeah, to yeah. put on my warmongering cap, I I think that could potentially be one of the bigger major points of conflict or crises mm. in, in in our time in our generation. You've, you've got your Nordic nations who are yeah. not necessarily going to side with NATO or European mm. uh, Union political interests mm. with regard to those rather significant oil resources there. You see, Russia's already planted a flag underneath there in the water. Mm. The, there's going to be a channel opening up there thanks to mm. uh, global warming mm. for, for seasonal shipping. That mm. place has become the, – the, the sort of northern uh, uh, circle there, the North Pole region, is going to become a major strategic point for Canada, North America, Nordic countries mm. or Scandinavian mm. countries – Russia and obviously the Europeans are going to want to get a, get involved. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, as you see from the Russians, they're not afraid to take what they like. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, you, to, 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 to get a little crazy, I, I think there's, there's more than just a, an insignificant chance of there being major conflict uh, in terms of bang, bang, bullet from a gun kind of conflict. Because of mm. that area, because mm. it's so strategically vital. And that's what the segment was about, was, yeah. was, was about how the, the various armies of those affected countries or interested countries, mm. uh, were all prepping themselves mm. and doing, Except doing for Sweden. War can't even find a submarine <laughs> in their own backyard. <laughs> war games, remember? Um, that's what John, they are. John, your, your other hat is editor of African Defense Review. Yes. And you, you, you do like your guns and ships and It's tanks difficult and to come out of my tunnel vision <laughs> and, and not see war everywhere. What? I mean, we, we haven't, correct me if I'm wrong, but we haven't seen a hot war between two sort of advanced military powers, a full-on conflict for, for a couple of decades. What would one look like now? I think the closest thing we had was the Georgian War. Um, I think that was probably the nearest damn it thing you would see to, to there being a, a, a conflict between two conventional, uh, at least north in the developmental terms, uh, militaries. And I think what you would see is you would see it would be very, very brutal. And to be honest, I don't think most militaries are actually aware of the cost that it's going to be. It's going to make the Iraq war look like nothing. 
because you, you, you're talking about highly, highly sophisticated weapons of destruction here. There's always the p- potential for nuclear warfare. I mean, it brings it, you back to all these Cold War kinds of uh, mm. sort of dilemmas. But I think in the end, you're going to have high, high cost for these regions. And I think states might even be prepared to wage non-nuclear conventional war against each other for these assets. I think a lot of it will be naval-based, given the, the area is a large ocean region. Mm. Um, and I think in that, that respect, that's why you start seeing, um, certainly within Britain, even though it's, it's undergoing heavy military cutbacks, it's launching one of the largest aircraft carriers the world has ever seen. Or I think it's, it's doing sea trials right now. Uh, the Scandinavian nations are building high, highly sophisticated uh, uh, frigates and, and destroyers because I think there's a lot of recognition that this is an area where you need to, to get involved. But I think the human cost in terms of lives lost is going to be significant. And I think that would be yeah. a, a cost that would be heavily considered. And I think some states would be prepared to go to it. Certainly Russia, that's for sure. Because uh, going back to what Steele was saying, I think, I mean, fueling any war, any, any uh, armed conflict, the, the real question is, is there a political motive? And, and there seems always, to be at, yeah. this mo- at the moment. Because, I mean, the Russians are basically, they've taken a huge chunk and they claim that that's theirs. Mm. And, and the scary thing for me, and going back to your question there, Simon, is the fact that now you're pitting two very powerful nations against each other, two very powerful nations that seem to be stepping on each other's toes regularly, especially as of late, mm. and that is the U.S. and Russia. I mean, uh, the acrimony between the two nations hasn't been this high since the end of the Cold War. Yeah. And I think you, you also can't discount the, the other little nations, and I think their allegiances shouldn't be taken for granted. I don't think you can account, the, say, the Scandinavians are necessarily going to align with the EU mm. or, or North America mm. in, in a hot war between these these two countries. Especially um, when there's so much at stake Yeah, in, in terms absolutely. of the, the value of those mm. deposits. And, mm. uh, I mean, it could single-handedly, especially for those Scandinavian countries, single-handedly, you know, uh, Almost double mm. GDP for them, and yeah. I think I it's mean, also it's it's not like the Cold War where 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 the threat of nuclear warfare was it was almost a political or ideological threat that hung over everyone. This is an economic uh, interest. Mm. This is a this would be or well, already is a, a a larger strategic tussle for for a an economically vital point that's going to be incredibly important. And I think with that regard, people will not go to nuclear war. But they're willing to send a couple of fleets and divisions into mm. that area to start actually. How would you even go about dividing this up, like fairly? You know, <laughs> well, you know, the Norwegians send well, Amundsen <laughs> submarine there, flags. And, you know, like, <laughs> how do you, you know, how would you even decide exactly? Uh, but uh, I actually totally forgot what my question was. Going oh. to be. And it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I promise you. It well, was why do you think of that? Okay. Well, Th- there is an international precedent for this where you have according to your borders you get an exclusive economic zone which all of those countries there will have claimed which extends 200 nautical miles out into the ocean and that area is yours to plunder and loot and pillage as much as you want um, as long as you can enforce it legally speaking what happens there is you have a hell of a lot of countries in a very small area where their exclusive economic zones don't extend 200 nautical miles out according to their borders without bumping into each other. And that's where you start getting all kinds of, of border disputes. Even uh, um, Angola is having disputes with its neighbors for its tiny little strip of, of, of coastland that it's got there mm. because there's, there's oil out there. So they're trying to mm. claim a, like 200 nautical miles no, going out. A radius um, of 200. You know, even though the Angola Navy is, is not necessarily the greatest thing in the world, <laughs> but they're, they're claiming it because it's economically useful. Well, well, you know, you've got to ask yourself, 
have we sort of outlived the usefulness of this nation state concept? I mean, I mean, the, 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 the idea that Moscow or Washington DC should benefit from mm. these resources, which are in the middle of nowhere. There's no human mm. habitation anywhere close. Um, these resources don't belong to those, those cities, to those governments. Surely, we need to be working on some kind of international mechanism for it. I know this is pie in the sky stuff. You bloody European. Um, <laughs> Come here with your regional yeah. homogenization. <laughs> well, the difficulty is when you look at even countries like the UK, this year Cameron said by 2017 we're going to revisit the, the EU membership question. And I think countries, even now, even European countries who are the, the picture mm. of non-states or non-national uh, integration and regional uh, uh, integration as well, even then, when, when the shit hits the fan, to excuse my French, uh, to excuse the pun about the French, um, the, <laughs> when the shit hits the fan, there is talk of secession from the EU and a, a almost like we're going to be our own country again. And that's that's worrying because I, I, I'm a big fan of the EU and I, I do agree with you. I think that certainly it's the way to a better global society. There I agree with you. There completely. For once, John, you and I are <laughs> <laughs> No, because and, – and this is the other thing that I've noticed is that there's this increase in, in nationalism usually when things mm. go wrong. You know, when we're unhappy, when, when the unemployment is down – when uh, I mean, look at situ- the, the the current South Blame African situation. Exactly, mm. exactly. I mean, if things start getting, you know, the more things get worse, the more unfortunately, if you're Zimbabwean in South Africa, mm. you're in trouble. Yeah, because it's your mm. fault. You know, yeah. despite what the president does, despite the hashtag pay back the money mm. and this, that, and the other, it's the Zimbabweans. You know, so so. Uh, and then that sentiment, I think, is, is starting to increase globally. And I just remember what my question was, if I may. Aha, please. So, I mean, is Russia then the horse to bet on? Because, I mean, yes, so they said stuff you to the U.S. And in, in the process, um, all the economic sanctions, not really a major impact. We still, you know, have the most uh, billionaires in the world, the fastest growing nation with billionaires in the world. Is, is Russia still the horse to bet on? In this I say no. I say absolutely. Why not. is that? I think Russia is overextended in yeah. uh, in the Eastern Europe uh, in its in its uh, attempts to to annex the Donetsk region of the Ukraine. I mean, Crimea yeah. was a fantastic pivot that, it, that that Putin did. He played his hand perfectly, mm. knowing that NATO probably wouldn't do anything. But I think he overextended in Ukraine, and if he tried to do something now, or even in the next ten mm. to twenty years, militarily speaking, in any other theater. As history has shown us, you don't fight a war in two fronts because you will lose. As America's seen now, Iraq and Afghanistan, you can't do two at the same time. Pick one and you'll probably be okay. But pick two and you'll, you'll have a problem. Let alone the fact that Russia's going against America and probably Canada and possibly the EU and NATO powers as well. And I think in, in that regard, I think don't underestimate American ability to fight conventional wars because it's, it's the kind of war that America has been building up to do for the past 60 or 70 years, whereas Russia, they lost all their money at the end of the Cold War, and they've kind of been struggling ever since to, mm. to resurrect its military ever after Perestroika and Glasnost. And I think they put on a good show, don't get me wrong, and they make the Ukrainians look stupid. But against someone like America, I, I think people would I, – I, I wouldn't put my money in, in Russia's corner. I, th- I think uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and bet on China. <laughs> Mostly yeah. because they're not involved. They're just going to sit back, watch Russia and America destroy each other. As China does. And, uh, yeah. and, and then walk over everybody. Yeah. Well, well I, I mean, and that comes back to uh, your piece on, on, on China and their involvement in Africa. And, uh, you know, on the face of it, you, you look at 
this for well, China's uh, advancement on the continent and their swallowing up of the resources. And you look at it and go, well, I don't really have a problem with it. They're coming in and, and you know, paying mm. market value for the yeah. resources that they're pulling out as opposed to the colonialism of Britain and France where they just came in and raped and pillaged and took and, you know, and you know, enslaved. You'll you get know. what we mm. give you and you will um, like it. Yeah. But, you know, the definition of neocolonialism is, um, is that it starts, I mean, the influence starts affecting your policies. We, we just look at the way that, you know, the Dalai Lama isn't allowed to come and visit us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, that sort of economic um, influence starts starts creeping yeah. into into policy and control uh, of, of these areas. And so it then becomes a bigger issue than just, okay, they're fine, they're coming in and paying market value for our resources, but the influence is just becoming so much and everywhere. Uh, corners are being cut, uh, and, and we're starting to see, uh, you know, it's starting to become worrying. The question I've been grappling with, because you hear this so often, um, in any discourse on African issues, you know, the problem with China and Africa is the Chinese who come and they, you know, they don't respect our environmental laws. They uh, don't pay fair wages for the labor. Mm. They, you know, they p- put backhanders in the, in the pockets of our leaders. And then you end up with exactly this kind of influence where the Dalai Lama is not allowed into South Africa. Now, I don't know. It's not for, for me. I, you know, I feel this way quite strongly w- with media as well. I mean, I'm not worried about how the Western media depicts Africa. I'm worried about how African media depicts Africa. And I'm not worried about what China wants to do in Africa. I'm worried about how Africa allows China to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, every example that I've come across where an African president has stood up to China and said, no, you know what, we're going we, we, to do it this way, or you're not going to mm-hmm. do it at all. A good example is Zambia, when uh, the late Michael Sata took charge. Um, he increased the minimum wage significantly and uh, put in a harsh new set of labor laws. Um, and you know what the Chinese did? The very next day, they started paying the new minimum wage, and they enforced the new labor <laughs> laws. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what really would have happened if we'd given the Dalai Lama a visa? Would well, China exactly. really have cut off their, yeah. their relations with South Africa? Would they have stopped mm. buying no, our resources? Absolutely not. So, so you know, the, the exactly. problem is not China. The problem is us. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm starting to feel that more and more strongly. The, the real problem we've got is the, our own leadership in Africa, and, I, and we need to sort I that out totally first. And I think it's – unfortunately, I don't think South Africa is particularly great in this regard either. The Dalai Lama has been a good case in point, and I think it's, a, it's almost a failure to understand – our weight in foreign policy terms and mm. to be able to formulate coherent I'm talking in a broad African sense here to formulate coherent foreign policy strategies especially when it comes to China where that can actually determine a hell of a lot of your, your country's uh, economic growth and, 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 and success uh, I think it's yeah it's, it's disturbing yeah. I think it's, it, it's, it comes down to basic e- economics we have something that you want you can have it but you're going to play according to our rules, you know, not according to your rules. And, and I mean, going back to it, the real question is, is it so, yes, we, we gave the Dalai Lama the nod and we gave him the visa and we said, please do come and welcome, you know, we welcome you with open arms. Please do visit us. Was anything adverse going to happen to our economy? I don't think so. Yeah. So, so, so why are we then? And I think it's more a case of, it's not really, clo- you see, the nice thing about the previous type of colonialism was that we didn't really have much of a choice. They had bigger guns <laughs> and militaries <Yeah. you> know, <laughs> and stuff. And you know, and you know, you'd get a clap if, if, if <laughs> you don't cooperate. 
Now it's a case of uh, we'll play along. No. Please, we'll just play exactly. along. Exactly. We are mm. complicit in in this neo-colonialism, if we're going to call it that. Maybe Furry the previous colonialism really just scared us, you know, and we don't want to get clapped anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, guys, we'll cooperate. We'll work with you. It's like a national battered wife syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> this is awful. Uh, guys, have you noticed that uh, this is obviously, you can tell this is our first show back and that South Africa has been pretty much on holiday. We haven't even mentioned uh, any local issues today. Um, <laughs> you know, so obviously our big newsmakers and our big troublemakers are still sunning themselves or only getting back into into scandal mode, um, you know, which I'm sure we'll pick up from next week onwards. Um, but maybe... I, still, yeah, I don't think it's that they haven't been doing the scandals. It's that all the journalists have been on holiday. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. um, Note to politicians, if you're going to do something, do it in December. Yeah. No, but interesting stuff happened in Cape Town, so I'm sure there's going to be a lot to talk about. Yeah, that's true. And we'll uh, be picking up steam. Uh, but maybe just uh, before you re- we wrap up, uh, just to look ahead or, you know, what are the big things on your radar this week or this year um, mm. in terms of things to, to, to watch out for, Simon? I am uh, going to be focusing a lot on the Nigerian election, which is in February. There's also the Zambian election, but that's not so interesting. The, this mm-hmm. election in Nigeria is huge. Mm. Um, mm. It is going yeah. to sort of decide the fate of the country. For the next five or ten years, um, I'm pretty sure good luck Jonathan is going to retain his seat. Yeah, and for me, that means just a, a, a accelerated decline, I think. So basically, Oof. a second Zuma term mm. equivalent. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Right. A colleague of mine at African Defense Review, Conway, uh, Conway Waddington, actually mentioned that it could potentially, potentially, uh, I can't emphasize it enough, almost boil down into a Kenya-esque kind of uh, violence uh, because of if Jonathan wins another term. Uh, be quite Gee, interesting. Absolutely. I'd, I'm very uh, worried mm. about that. A- added to that is the fact that Boko Haram has said mm. that uh, voting is also Haram. Oh. So they will be targeting voters and voting stations, presumably. And we've seen what, what happens when people exactly. are saddened with a vote. Um, yeah. And also what that means is that people aren't going to vote, you mm. know, and especially yeah. in the north. Um, with Boko Haram, oh, I, I mean, if I was a northerner mm. and Boko Haram said they're going to bomb a polling station, there's no and, way and they're easy like targets, to, masses yeah, of yeah, people, and exactly. in, in, and 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 probably too many for the military to to look after. Yeah, exactly, and I mean, there's no way you can put a full-on security effort across the entire mm. country in yeah. every polling station. Yeah, John, what's on your radar? Um, something actually completely different, and I think a hell of a lot more pleasant is uh, the NFL playoffs are drawing to a close, and there's going to be the Super Bowl at the, on the first of February. Um, I'm a huge NFL fan and I love watching How does that happen? How does a South African Uh, become a huge NFL fan? You would be surprised how many South Africans actually really enjoy the NFL uh, series. I mean, they they started thankfully putting the playoffs in Supersport as well. I I think you have friends in America who who force Mm. you to Mm. sit for three hours, explain the rules to you. And once you understand the rules, Mm. I think kind of like rugby, it's actually... It becomes a hell of a lot more enjoyable. Yeah. So I think with those, the, the, the playoffs are looking to be quite interesting. The last weekend's game with the, between the Patriots and uh, um, the Baltimore Ravens were fantastic. It was, it was such a great game, absolutely great game, if you know the rules. Otherwise, it's boring. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm following that quite closely, and I'm going to subject all the all the Daily Maverick readers to that. <laughs> <laughs> I like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> Gus, you're a closet fan as well. Closet fan. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Wait, which team? Hold on. No, no, I don't have a particular oh, okay. allegiance okay. yet. Um, it takes some time. Uh, yeah. You know, a very patriotic <laughs> block. Uh, I still support the Lions. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to uh, the two World Cups, rugby and cricket, and the African Cup of Nations. Hopefully, we can do the triple this year with the Springboks, Proteas, and Bafana. That would be incredible. Oh, it's 
Because, uh, uh, but, what, you uh, want them all to, all, all to go out? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm backing the Proteas because it, it's the irony of uh, Jacques Callas not being there, carrying the team for the last 18 years, leaves it and they go and win the World Cup. I could see that irony and possibly <laughs> by uh, Ireland have a shot at the World Cup. But uh, that's the, the wrap-up of the, of the first show of the year. Um, you can catch it on iTunes, uh, subscribe to the Daily Maverick Show, or get it from the Daily Maverick website and Cliff Central. You can subscribe to the First Thing Newsletter or uh, the Daily Dose on Cliff Central. Until next week, uh, thanks for joining us. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.